Imagine not being one of the closest three, not Peter, not James, not John, nor being one of the chosen twelve, or even part of the sent-out 72 from Luke 10. Instead, imagine being a follower of Jesus just on the periphery. You've been around throughout the last three years, nearby, mostly in, yet still keeping your options open. You've been absolutely fascinated by the teachings, also by the great crowds, of course by the miracles, but mostly it's his personality that attracts and intrigues you. The sensation of his being utterly open to the ways of heaven, personally in touch with the glories of the Godhead, is what, from time to time, overwhelms you. You can't help feeling that you're watching the ways of God within a man as if it were possible, you wonder, for God to become a man? Parenthetically, just a reminder, all of our, your and my, uh, Christian orthodoxies of today were another generation's ruminations, even their potential heresies. So, Jesus and his interconnectedness with God. Two images from two different days, almost identical, define it for you. On both days, you were near the teacher, but as always, at the periphery, and the upland fields were filled as far as the eye could see with people. Like a great big patchwork quilt, all the color of their cloaks and tunics filled the landscape with seams of green grass meandering through their groupings. And now Jesus and his friends, on both of these days, are having a, a whispered, earnest sort of conversation about the lack of food and the crowds and the waning of the day. And then, with just a few loaves of bread in hand, just a couple of fresh-caught fish from the Galilee, the same thing happened on both days. Jesus, smiling, even grinning, took a loaf in his hands, lifted it heavenward, raising his eyes almost as if to meet the gaze of the Father, gave grateful thanks for the food all were about to enjoy, and then <coughs> broke the bread. And that, right before that, right before that, that's what struck you. The use of the word, did you catch it? All in his prayer. The foreordained quality of the prayer, and then the miracle that followed after. You see, it was not so much the miracles themselves, but those prayers of thanksgiving beforehand, like knowing the miracles as if already accomplished, that stuck in your, yes, on the fringe, not quite a disciple memory. There was something so magnificently insouciant, so wonderfully casual, relaxed, about his giving thanks to his father for something so insanely impossible that he knew the two of them were able to do, were about to do. That is why, again, breaking that bread, that image is somehow in your mind associated with this high and growing sense that you are dealing with a human divinity. Well, fast forward. Perhaps a year or so 
after that. In the course of one week, that divine human, that human divine is acclaimed, overwhelmingly applauded, and then questioned by, quoted about, arrested, abused, condemned, convicted, crucified. Of course, you yourself are not there, but the eyewitness reports, mostly from the women who always understood him best, tell you that by 3 p.m. on that Friday, he was dead. Before nightfall, he was already in a new carved grave. That Saturday is a blur for you all, both for the insiders and the pseudo-insiders like yourself. Sunday. Here are your observations. Before the cock crows, before even a hint of light is shining inward through the slats of the closed shutters, Mary Magdalene is up and away with, you think, a few of the other women. You were there in the upper room. You only half heard them leave. Then, within an hour, she, Mary Magdalene, re-enters the room, whispering, gesticulating, and immediately Peter and John run out the door together. Those two are back in 30 or 40 minutes, silent, far-off-seeming. Mary Magdalene arrives back within, say, another 20 minutes. And the look in her eyes, the peculiar, gleaming quality of her countenance re-entering the upper room is nearly impossible to describe. She has, to say it simply, seen something. She has entered into a different and utterly altered state of being. And what are her only words, repeated again and again throughout the remainder of the morning and afternoon ahead? Only. He's alive. I saw him. Over and over again, all day long. Well, At the midpoint of the afternoon, you catch the eye of your friend Cleopas, he who is of the same town and of the same line of work as you. Emmaus the town, home builders by trade. Because you have together taken a commission on the framing of a new dwelling in your town and the beginning of the work is scheduled for tomorrow. So now it's time to go, even despite all of this interest here in Jerusalem. So off you go together, out through the western gate, leaving the heat of the city, and then across the plains, and then upward, enjoying the fresher feeling air. Then a stretch of rocky barrens, then a far off view over a a broad valley that sweeps higher and higher into the distance. Around you are fields and Small homes, palms and date trees fringe the roadside. Everything around you is arranged as if to make this walk pleasant. But instead, and because of the strangeness of this day, the outrageous quality of the rumors you've been hearing, well, there's only one thing you can talk about. The the life of the teacher, 
the miracles of the teacher, the teachings of the teacher, and naturally the course of this last week, the entry into the city just one week ago, and now here today, the rumors of a dead man alive. And you are so involved with the earnestness of your viewpoint, some agreeing, some not, that you and Cleopas have become completely unaware of your physical surroundings and, and the walk you're on. Thus, you have not noticed the stranger matching your strides and falling in behind you. You do not notice him until he <clears throat> clears his throat. You and your friend stop immediately and turn back. You cannot see the stranger's face. The shawl of his cloak is pulled up fully over his head and it shades his features. The three of you are all then silent for a long moment. The stranger approaches. What are you two talking about? You and Cleopas hang your heads in unison. Then Cleopas, with a note almost of annoyance in his voice, says to the stranger, How can you not know? You must be the only person in Jerusalem, in the whole country, who doesn't know of the things that have happened. It almost sounds like the stranger laughs. <laughs> then he asks, What things? Oh, well, all about Jesus. From Nazareth, Cleopas says. Now there was a man. A prophet strong in what he did and what he said in God's eyes, as well as the people. Haven't you heard how our chief priests and rulers handed him over for execution, had him crucified? But you see, we were hoping he was the one who was to come and, and, and set us free. Then you yourself chime in. Yes, and if that wasn't enough, it's getting on for three days since all this happened. And some of the ladies in our midst have disturbed us profoundly. For they went to the tomb at dawn today. And then when they couldn't find his body, they said they had a vision of angels who said that he is alive. Some of our people then went straight off to the tomb, found things just as the women had described them, but they didn't see him. The stranger begins walking and then beckons you to follow. For some reason, you do. He walks swiftly, and the two of you, you and Cleopas, almost struggled to keep up. Then the stranger says, But aren't you failing to understand? Or are you perhaps slow to believe in all that the prophets have said? Uh, was it not inevitable that Christ should suffer like that and so find his glory? Remember Moses' words to Aaron, uh, to the people, that it is the blood that makes atonement for one's life? Or, or think of Isaiah's words. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. What do you think that meant? Or think two of those wonderful words of David's. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. 
because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. For you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. My friends, don't you think that old King David was talking about precisely what your women friends have been describing to you all day long? You can hardly answer. You and Cleopas walk silently on. Inwardly, the voice of the stranger is slowly setting fire to your spirit, though you know not why. He continues speaking along that same vein for perhaps another half hour. He unpacks the entirety of the old scrolls. You walk along just listening. As you near Emmaus, the stranger stops talking and seems to be consumed with his own thoughts. He also seems to be bent on walking on further. The sunset colors are starting to descend quietly over the countryside. You and Cleopas look at each other, decide to invite the stranger into your home for a shared dinner. The interior of the home is cool and dark. You've been gone for more than a week in the capital. All you have is just a stale loaf of bread and a half skin of wine. You and Cleopas sit down at the table, the stranger on the other side. You light a lamp. Its flickering isn't enough to light up the stranger's features. Until, and this is the moment when the earlier burning in your heart suddenly crescendos again wildly as the stranger reaches forward, takes up the loaf, leans closer to the lamplight as you and Cleopas suddenly start to feel a strange familiarity striking your hearts at the look of his hands as the stranger lifts up that loaf and begins to pray. Oh, yes, suddenly, as he breaks the loaf, as he offers up a prayer of thanksgiving, what you're all about to enjoy from the Father, you see by the lamplight, it is him. But just like that, he is gone, vanished. You and Cleopas are already out of your seats, running back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem.